Church, let's remain standing to hear the word of the Lord today. We're going to be in John chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What does this have to do with me, you and me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish, uh, for Jewish purification, and each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim, and then he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter tasted the water, after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants had drawn the water um, new. I'm sorry, though the servants draw, drawn the water new. He called the groom and told him, everyone sets the fine wine first. Then after people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Church, this is where the Lord. All right, so today is Super Bowl Sunday. I have to have an obligatory reference to that, right? Uh, some qualifications here. I want to ask you a question. Raise your hands, and if you're down in the fellowship hall, you can raise your hands, although I can't see you. Uh, how many of you guys are, and when I say fans, I mean like you have gear, okay? You have like sweatshirts, t-shirts, you wear the war paint, but you're fans of Kansas City. I mean fans. I'm not saying you're pulling for them tonight, you're fans. Nobody, right? How about Tampa Bay? Same, same there. So we've got one for Tampa Bay over here. Now, third question. How many of you are going to a Super Bowl fellowship tonight of some sort? Yeah. Come on, raise them a high. Come on, get up, get up there. Get up there. So a lot more people are going to a Super Bowl fellowship for two teams that they have really little interest in. Yeah? Okay. So just drawing our attention to that, we love parties, don't we? Like, we'll do anything, any excuse to get together, even if it's two teams we could care less about, particularly for me, Tampa Bay, and Tom Brady winning another championship, although I know there's some disagreements in our youth ministry this morning concerning this, but that's okay. They were having a good time with that today, from what I understand. But yeah, we love to party. We love to get together. We love feasting. We love uh, enjoying the gathering of friends and family for great gatherings, and whether they're holidays, which many of us, there are weddings. I mean, I've been able to do a number of weddings over the last few years, and, and we love having that after the ceremony. All the family and friends get together and celebrate this new union, and it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. For me personally, one of my big favorites is the big family seafood meal that we have sometimes when we go down to the beach with my family, and, and we all kind of put together all this stuff, and you know, try to attempt to, to make seafood when we never touch it any other time of the year and whatnot. But we love feasts. We love food. We love good parties. Well, perhaps maybe not our extrovert friends, right? You like your, you like your, you may like your spouse being around, but even then that's kind of pushing it, right? But we do like it. We like being around each other. We love these kinds of things. And I think it's kind of built into our DNA. In some measure, we, we like this. We enjoy this. And we know there's something right about it. There's something good about a feast, I think it's something that's ingrained, frankly, in our biblical DNA. We see in Revelation 21, 
that everything, what, culminates in a grand feast, doesn't it? So maybe there's something very biblical, something beautiful, something intensely theological about this love for, for parties. Well, today, as we look at this familiar passage that we just read about this wedding feast in Cana, you know, I want us to be reminded that feasting and parties are our opportunity for followers of Jesus to live by faith in the glory of Christ as we're preparing for the, the greatest feast of all, the Feast of the Lamb. I think that's where we're going to land by the time this is all over with this morning. I hope that that's what we're preparing for each Sunday as we gather and we sing the songs we sing and the taking of the Lord's Supper and we hear God's Word preached each and every week is that we're preparing for the feast. We're preparing for that, that time, that Feast of the Lamb, and it's going to be epic. It's going to be beautiful. Now let me think, of, now I want, before we jump into the text, it's important to kind of maybe do a little bit of bird's eye view of the text a little bit because we've been working and mining through chapter one pretty diligently over the last couple of months. Uh, and it might be important, and I think it's actually vitally important for us to see kind of where this wedding feast in Cana kind of plays out in um, John's gospel because it kind of plays two roles. I was kind of, as I was studying this the last couple of weeks, and I was actually sharing with Ryan yesterday via text as I was kind of wrapping up my sermon, I was like, man, I, I, there's some things here, and I saw the commentaries develop that I wasn't quite convinced of, but I think I'm more convinced of as I think about this text for us. And there's two things going on here in John's wedding feast um, story. It's finishing, if you will, what he's been building in chapter 1. But it's also setting us up for what he will build for the next 10 chapters of these seven signs. This is the first of seven signs. So let's think about that just for a moment, about what is it that John's closing here, and what is it that John's beginning here? This, what transitory qualities does this text have for us so that when we can dive in, we go, wow, we see the gospel, we see the work of Jesus so much more clearly when we understand these things. And that's what I hope by mining into this just for a few moments will help us with. Well, first, as I noted, John is bringing to close his introduction, I believe, here in this text. Um, if you've followed along with us over the last couple of months, you understand that we see in John 1 this kind of retelling of the creation narrative, right? 1 through 18, verses 1 through 18 of chapter 1 is kind of peering into the Godhead before the creation of the world, and we're taking a good, intense look at the second person of the Godhead, Jesus, who is the Word made flesh. And then what we have happening after verse 18, verse 19, we kind of have this seven-day kind of account. Day one, John's, I look at John's preparatory ministry, preparing the way for Jesus. Day two, Jesus has arrived and his testimony about who Jesus is. Day three and four, disciples are being made and called and taught. And then today, three days after this time with Jesus calling out Philip and Nathaniel, we have the seventh day, the first of seven signs about the glory of Jesus. And friends, this should send our heart just spinning. Now what the point of that is, is we'll talk about here in just a few moments, but it's important that we get the, the, the point what John is trying to help us see because you, if you were here for the introduction of this series, you remember me telling you that John's gospel is really different than um, the other three gospels. 
The other three Gospels kind of give us a chronological account of Jesus' life from the time he comes on the scene, begins his ministry, all the way to the cross and to the resurrection. John doesn't really concern himself with the chronology. He's actually really building a theology of Jesus. Like, who is he? What's the beauty of this, of this Christ that has come to us? And so then, then, the, then the thing you must ask yourself is, then why is he now focusing on numerating these days? Well, I think it's because it's precisely what I just said. He's showing us Jesus. He's showing us that, as we'll see here in a moment, God is resetting the creation narrative that has fallen into brokenness and despair, and now he's recreating it, if you will. It's not, he's not recreating creation, but he's now resetting and, and fulfilling all that God had commanded and all that God had planned in creation, and he's bringing it all to fulfillment in himself. So that's, that's kind of how John's bringing it close to the introduction, but he's also kind of then preparing us in this first sign at Cana for, the next, for all the seven signs, which again are there as John's kind of building and, and framing out who Jesus is on the backdrop of these seven signs shows us more intently the glory of Jesus. So do you see kind of the, 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 the two sides of this story? Hopefully you're understanding. Hopefully this is going to help you as we walk into the rest of not today but not only today but through the next several weeks because what i love about john is he doesn't waste words he doesn't waste literary tools he's going to use all of it so that we'll see jesus and friends that's what we should be looking for when we read the scriptures when we come to the church on sundays and worship together we should want to see jesus so I've broken up our text, and usually you know how I do. I take a couple of chunks here, but today is going to be broken up into three main truths that I want us to think about. Let me go ahead and give them to you, and you can follow along as we go. First, we're going to see in this text the lifelessness of a Christless existence. We'll see that in verses 1 through 5. We'll then turn to the lavishnessness, that's a mouthful, of the Christ-filled life. And then the Third will be, how do we live then in, 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 in anticipation of the great wedding feast of the Lamb? So those are our three truths that we're going to be unpacking. Let's talk about that first one, the lifelessness in a Christless existence. Verses 4, 1 through 5 kind of set the story for us, don't they? Jesus and his disciples are invited to a wedding. His mother's there. It's likely then because Jesus and his mother are there. Um, this reference to her is probably an indication that this is some kind of family wedding, family affair. Someone in the family is getting wedding, getting, getting married, excuse me. But then we find at verse 3 that there's this crisis that happens. Verse 3 says, and when the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. Now, you might want to wonder, like, why is this a big deal? You know, you go to parties and I go to parties. And tonight when you go to a party, when the chip and dip runs out, everyone's going home. Or someone's making a run to Kroger. Not a real big deal, but there's, this is a big deal here because wedding feasts, as you and I probably all know, are huge affairs. We experience them today, but they were monumental affairs back in Jesus' day. They were week-long affairs. They had societal implications that sometimes we don't associate with our weddings today. Like, you probably don't get married. You don't think about the societal implications of your marriage, which we probably should. We see the unfolding, we see the, the unfolding, the unraveling of the family today and the unraveling of the vision of marriage today. And maybe the church should start peering back into the seriousness of why they looked at marriage back then. 
Anyway, these, these marriages, these wedding feasts would be week-long events, and the bridegroom and his family were responsible for making sure they had all of the food, all of the, the food and the libations for the week, the wine for the week, and, uh, and then they would have a, like hire out some kind of master of the party, hired servants, head waiter you see here in this text, to kind of basically execute the whole thing so they could sit back and enjoy the affair, right, and enjoy the, the, the feast. Well, why this is such a problem is when Mary comes on, it, it, it's pointing to the fact that the wine is run out, and, and the fact that she's bringing it to them at this point means it's probably somewhere on the early side of the week, early side of the celebration. It's far too early for things to start running out at this point, particularly wine, and I'll tell you about more about that here in a moment. And so if the wine was already running out, you got to understand that this was not just like, weddings weren't just a covenant between a husband and wife. They were, they were in some sense a covenant between two families. They were social contracts. And so the whole village, if you will, would come and celebrate this, this gathering because a lot of times villages were just nothing more than just a few families. If you've lived in a small town like I did, like the two main families in Bedford County, Virginia, were my mom's side of the family and they all married into one another and yeah, it's the whole thing. But the point is, it's, it's, this is what we see. You probably come from something similar to this if you were to track your heritage back far enough. And for this to happen, it would bring great shame on the family, the bridegroom's family, because this is their responsibility. It was, a, it was not just a social contract. In fact, one commentator, or actually a couple of commentators, actually focus on the fact that there might even be legal obligations that could happen here for the bridegroom's family because they've made a promise to have this affair be epic for their daughter who's been given to this family in marriage. So this was a big, big deal. And so then Jesus' response to his mother seems rude, right? What does it have to do with you and me, woman? That's what the CSB says. My hour has not yet come. Now, the fact that Mary turns to her son for help in this moment should not, although I think I can see why we would go there, should not signal in us this kind of thought that maybe she's just trying to get Jesus to conjure up a little magic trick with his divine powers. Because this is his first public like, display of his power, and I'm pretty sure the one thing Jesus is not interested in doing is being a party favor at the local wedding. And I'm sure that his mother doesn't want to treat him that way either, but she does trust her son because he's taken on the household job, right? He's a carpenter like his father was. And so he's a dependable guy and he's got these guys now following him. And so they, certainly they can come up with some kind of you know, solution to this situation. But even if this is not her goal, is just to kind of play the, Jesus as a party favorite, we, we got to understand that Jesus himself does see more implications here. Jesus says it in his own words. My hour hasn't come. In other words, he's already reading into this whole situation. There's much more significance to you asking me to interfere in this situation than you can possibly imagine. For me to display my glory in such a way would mean that that's time for me to show that glory in a way that, that right now it's not time. It's just not time for that. And so he, he, he says this to her. There's much, a much larger redemptive rubric in play for Jesus and he and he and that maybe Mary and the servants and the disciples aren't yet ready to see in the end when we start thinking about these things the meaning of this is pretty clear right Jesus understood that the wedding feast was a was had larger significance because of its it was a symbol created by God 
to be a consummation, to point towards the consummation of Jesus coming, the messianic age, if you will, this wedding feast of the Lamb I keep referring to. We understand that biblically weddings are pictures of this ultimate wedding feast, and, and between, between this, our heavenly bridegroom and his redeemed bride, the covenant people that he's been promising since, well, it was since the beginning, but particularly since Abraham, his church. The events that were unfolding at this wedding, though, seem to be not worried about that. They're worried about, oh, wow, this is going to be really embarrassing if we're running out of wine day three, day four, day five. They're losing sight of the larger significance. But Jesus says, no, 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 we're not going to lose sight of this. I want you to see something beautiful. Now, he doesn't, he doesn't say as much in this inner engagement, but that is indeed what Jesus has in mind by what he does in the next point we'll see here in a few moments. Jesus sees the gravity of the situation that maybe Mary and his servants don't see. And, and, and frankly, some of us in our own daily living don't see, if we're really honest with ourselves. There's much, something much more important, much more dangerous than this public humiliation. It's what, it's what I'm going to call Christless irreligion. We'll get to Christless religion here in a moment. But Christless irreligion. It's that kind of living that pursues godless means or pursues the good things of God and then utilizes them in godless ways. It is your life, your wedding, your marriages, your homes, your money, your, your whatever, your romantic life. All of these things serve only one end, and that's you, and that's me. That's called godless living. That's called Christless irreligion. It's taking the good gifts of God that we've been doing, by the way, since the garden with God's good gifts. I love what Jonathan Edwards says in regard to this, about how we misuse the good gifts of God. He says, The carnal soul imagines that earthly things are excellent. One thinks riches are most excellent. Another has the high esteem of honor, most excellent. And yet another, carnal pleasure, appears to be most excellent. But the soul cannot find contentment in any of these things because it soon finds an end to their excellence. Read Ecclesiastes. Lead Solomon's pursuit of these things. And at the end of each of those pursuits, he says, they are vain. They do not satisfy. They are misuses of God's good gifts. We are to use God's good gifts. We are to enjoy God's good gifts. But we are to do them the way God commands us to do them. One great example in American history of how we, probably, probably a really stark example of this is Ernest Hemingway. So I read a little bit of Ernest Hemingway in college lit because I had to, not because I wanted to, but I had to. Some of you really enjoy that kind of stuff. That's for you to keep to yourself. But nonetheless, I had to watch, listen to this stuff. We did lectures on it, and the professor was talking about Hemingway's life compared to his actual novels. And so I was reflecting on this this week, and I found a few quotes that were really helpful to us. One quote says about Hemingway, just in terms of, if you don't know who he is, let me just kind of tell you who he was. He says, Hemingway was the toast of his generation, and his novels, based on his experiences, world travels, and keeping company with elite writers, and certainly many women, are considered masterpieces in American literature. In his famed The Snows of Kilimanjaro, the wife is said to have said to her, her dying husband, which of course is an allusion to Hemingway himself, because Hemingway was very much high on himself, all right? All of his novels were really about him. And she says to her dying husband, why, do you, why are you the most complete man I have ever met? Of course, it's just 
It's just so thick with human arrogance, right? So thick with human pride. And it, 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 it makes us think that Hemingway was the man of men, right? That he, he got everything. He got every drip out of his life until you read a biography about him. And our professor showed this to us in a biography written by Nicholas Reynolds. The, the title of it, if you want to go back and look at it yourself, is The Writer, Sailor, Soldier, and Spy, The Secret Adventures of Hemingway. Here's what he writes at the very end of his biography concerning Hemingway. And it's tragic. It's sad. And frankly, prepare yourselves, it's graphic. Sunday morning dawned, bright and cloudless. Ernest awoke early as always. He put on his red emperor's robe and padded softly down the carpeted stairway. The early sunlight lay in pools on the living room floor. He had noticed that the guns were locked up in the basement, but the keys, as he well knew, were on the window ledge above the kitchen sink. He tiptoed down the basement stairs and unlocked the storage room. It smelled as dank as a grave. He chose a double-barreled boss shotgun with a tight choke. He had used it for many years, pigeon suiting. He took some shells from the, one of the boxes in the storage room, closed and locked the door, climbed the basement stairs. If he saw the bright day outside, he did not, it did not deter him. He crossed the living room floor to the front foyer, a shrine-like entryway to his home that was huge and, and oak-paneled with beautiful floors. He slipped in two shells, lowered the gun butt carefully to the floor, leaned forward, pressed two twin barrels against his forehead just above his eyebrows, and tripped the two triggers. This is what is left of Hemingway, who bragged about the grandiose experiences he had all his life. Many of us in here are still thinking we're missing something. We think that we miss something when we just do the ordinary, everyday stuff. I've fallen into that trap myself. Many of us are still pursuing lifeless, Christless existences. Maybe not quite as spectacular as Hemingway, to be sure, but our place, we place our satisfaction in our wealth, our great life experiences, our lustful endeavors, our comforts, whatever they may be, and if we're honest, and let me just speak clearly to the Christian community for a second, because this, this can vary among the Christian community in some ways, but, but one thing that I think I've seen quite often in my conversations with many believers, particularly some even in our own church, is that this fear that we're feeling in this current cultural moment where we're fearing the, the disintegration of our nation, which, by the way, should be grieved and should be, we should we'd be asking the Lord to repair, my fear is, is that their fear is more based on a loss of a kind of lifestyle that we've been afforded for nearly 250 years that has required little of our faith. It's not really about trying to make sure we preserve some kind of Christian heritage. It's really about the fact that we, we really haven't been challenged in our faith over the last 250 years in our current moment because we've actually been able to be Christians in more or less relative ease. And that's hard to hear, right? It's hard to read. I know that's true of my own self. Christians should be the first and the most zealous proponents of seeing life as more than preserving the white picket fence life, right? We understand the Christian life is one of is relative uncomfort. It's one of, of, of relative unease. It's one of 
relative suffering. Yet Christless Christianity preaches another vision of Christian life entirely. And we must beware of it because it creeps into the souls of people in pews every Sunday. We'll talk more about Christian pragmatism in the second point. At the end of the day, it's, I would say it's, it's, it's wrongly seeing our mission as the church. If you want a side reference, go listen to White Horse Inn's recent conversation about the mission of the church. It will help reset your vision of it, I think. So there's a, there's, a, there's a lifelessness in the Christless existence that it just permeates the world we live in. It's been happening since the garden, and it's even happening in Israel in this wedding feast that should have been the last place you see this reality, right? And so Jesus comes on the scene, and his response to this situation is to do the opposite, to show us a lavishness of his Christ-filled life. That the Christ-filled life is lavish. Regardless of his mother and the others around him could see the larger redemptive scope of the moment, Jesus was intent on giving them a taste of the kingdom that was dawning. Jesus was intent that even though the great hour of, the, of this new and beautiful and tasty wine had not yet, was not yet at hand, he was still none intent, no, no less intent to give them a taste of it nonetheless, right? That's what we see here in this turning the water into wine. Let's just pick up in verse 6 here. It says, now six stone jars have been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained about 20 or 30 gallons. Now, he brings our attention to these six stone jars. Um, and when you see 20 to 30 gallons, it means imperial gallons, which in reality, the gallons of our day today would be more like 180 to 200 gallons. These are massive purification jars. Massive. And the reason that's important for us was because they were used for ceremonial washing, ceremonial purification. The Jews were obsessed with ceremonial cleansing. They washed their hands before every meal. In fact, Jesus' Jesus's disciples were criticized on a couple of occasions in the Gospels about their use and not washing their hands and not preparing themselves for feasting and so on and so forth. Not only would they wash their hands, the whole, the whole preparing for these great feasts that they would have in Jewish history in, in Israel would be almost a ceremony in themselves about how they had to wash themselves to prepare for it. It was, a, it was a big deal. It was a big ordeal back in their day. But the problem with the ceremonial washing of Israel, which you know I've got to go here, right? Is that the focus is on what? Washing the outside. It's not cleaning the inside. It's not the internal cleansing, not the internal um, purification that we all so desperately need. And so Jesus gives some directions here. He says, fill the jars of water, and they did so, and they did so that so much that there was water was spilling out of these jars. I mean, it was filled to the brim, it says. The picture is to the brim. Like, you couldn't move these, well, you probably couldn't move them anyway, but if you couldn't move these jars with, these, with this water in it because it would slosh all over the place because that's how full it was. Jesus is saying, he's obviously pointing to something, right? The fullness that he will provide, but we're going to get there. He commands them to do so, but what he does next just seems mind-boggling to us. At least it does to me. He tells them, all right, well, draw some now and take it to the head waiter. Okay. And you can just imagine the servant's guy going, okay, we just filled them. Just turned off the spigot, Jesus. I, what, what do you expect? Okay, I know these guys have been partying hard for a few days, but I'm pretty sure they're going to know the difference between water and wine, Jesus. 
Notice how the head waiter responds. Wait, what? You saved the best for last? Just read it. He tasted the water, now made wine, and he did not know where it came from. He didn't know Jesus was having a hand in this. And though the servants had drawn it for him, they knew. He called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the wine, for fine wine first. And after people are, are drunk or have had their fill or inebriated, this is the picture here, inebriated. Let's be honest. They would serve the poor wine last because obviously at that point your senses are probably dulled and you wouldn't know what you're drinking. You're just like happy to be drinking. And Jesus comes to the forefront here and I'm sorry, these guys, he, he's like amazed at whoa, so you held back the good stuff to the end? Again, talking to the bridegroom, the head of the feast, he's not talking about Jesus. He didn't know anything about Jesus' involvement in this situation. This is what's amazing. Jesus doesn't really, it doesn't really fully come out yet. No, the reality is, and hopefully you're seeing this, is that Jesus gives us something far superior than what we can conjure up. He gives us a wine that's sweeter and more fulfilling and more full than the wine that we can bring the best of our wine to the wedding feasts of our own time. I just, before I continue, I just want to, I want to talk a little bit here about the misnomer about wine and alcohol and all that stuff in the life of the church, because I think it's important that we say what the Bible says and don't say what the Bible doesn't say. In the Old Testament, the use of wine is a good gift of God. It is to be used as such. It is to be seen as a picture that we of, of joy that of, of in God's people as they have experienced the redemption of God. Wine in the Bible is always connected to God's redemptive plans that He's been unfolding since the garden. It's a picture of joy. So then wine is God's good gift and is to be consumed in these high and holy festivals that was instituted in the Mosaic Law. Why? To represent the lavishness of God's salvation. Wine in the Bible is not, you ready for this, it's not unfermented wine. Drink grape juice. Don't at me after this is over with, please, because we're not going to have a good conversation about this. It's just not there. It's not in the Bible. Certainly the Bible has clear warnings about the abuse of God's good gifts. In fact, that's all over the Bible, right? That's all over the Bible. Don't abuse all of any of God's good gifts. In particular, the Bible, and that's what it's talking about. When he tells us not to be abused, not to be drunk with wine, it's because that is exactly what we tend to do with God's good gifts. We tend to take God's good gifts and abuse them and make them about our happiness, as we mentioned in the last point, and make them about our joy, not about the joy we receive from the redemption we have in Christ. God's good, good, good gifts, and all of them, are meant to bring glory to God and are not meant to be idols that we put on our fireplaces at home. Household asherahs, as it were. So then, when it comes to the Christian and our understanding and our view of wine, look, understand that most churches, especially in the Reformed, they, they believe wine should be part of the Lord's Supper. We don't do that here, but it's one of those things because they recognize that there's something beautiful in this whole situation. And it's tough, because, because, but they realize this because of what Paul says, right? Do everything for the glory of God. 
Every second of your life should be used for the glory of God. Not one second of your life should be used to abusing the good gifts of God. Do you see how the two work together? So, you, so yes, there's dangers in it, but there's dangers in everything that we abuse that's good, given to us good by God. Everything. So let's just make sure we understand that it's, it's, a, it's, 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 a, it's a sad reality we have to do that, but it's something that we must say, right? We want to make sure we talk about this in the way the Bible talks about it. And so I just want to make sure we warn ourselves off about adding rules to God's good gifts, whether they're wine or not, because it's simply not faithful to Scripture. It's just not. But let's get back to the point for a moment. In the end, in this moment, when Jesus is filling these jars, what he is doing is he's using this occasion to make good on the deficiencies of this unknown bridegroom, right? He was not able to provide the needs of his party. And the wine he was was far, in, far, far more deficient than the wine that Jesus would provide. And in that, what is Jesus doing? He's pointing them to a greater truth about himself, right? He's pointing them to a greater truth, that he himself, namely, is the sweet wine of redemption. This is what it's all about. Jesus is the true messianic bridegroom, and he is holding a great wedding feast as he's wedding himself to his people, the church, at this heavenly banquet. And that's not yet at hand. He would still have to die on a cross. He'd still have to be resurrected. He'd still have to be ascended. And one day he's going to come again gloriously. And all this is going to transpire in some way, shape, or form. But it's not just about pointing to this heavenly feast. It's, it's also the fact of the incompleteness of our own, our own efforts to purify ourselves. It's not lost on me that there's six jars for purification, is it? And that the only way that these jars truly purify is when who engages with the jars? Jesus. He himself comes in. He completes the purification process for his people through his, ultimately, his death and his resurrection. Boys, that, and friends, this is just, this should be, this should send our heart just off the charts right now. So if there was a, a danger in Christless irreligion, as I noted a few moments ago, there's certainly a danger then in Christless religion of taking things that were God had given, these purification jars, and thinking that we can purify ourselves. Where there's an incompleteness in a Christless religion. And, and listen, it's, it's more than just being able to say, well, look at other world religions like Islam, Buddhism, and Hinduism, and all that stuff. Like, those are certainly true, and all these other philosophies that are Christless. But here's the thing I, wanna, I don't want to peer into for a moment. What about Christless Christianity? And it exists today, by the way. It's all over the place. Christless Christianity. Christless Christianity is really nothing more than Christian pragmatism. And Christian pragmatism comes in all kinds of forms. It comes in all kinds of programs, all kinds of movements, all kinds of initiatives, whatever you want to say. And, and, and we use it to employ ways to get the most people in the room or to get most people on our side. That's Christian pragmatism. 
Examples of this might be the consumer-based evangelicalism of our day, right? Where you come and you will go to a church and the first thing in your mind is, what do you have to offer me? You know, my kids. Do I like your worship style? Do I like the way you dress? Do I like your building? Any number of Christian pragmatism. Now, good doing good things and doing excellent things like making this building, you know, have a paint color on it that we like is actually not a bad thing, right? And, and, and listen, this is not, I'm not taking anything that's been faithfulness happening here, but we want to modernize it, right? That's, that's not the same thing. But it's when we take those kinds of things and we, and it's just about kind of the song and dance of it all. But Christian pragmatism isn't just consumer-based evangelicalism. Christian pragmatism also has something to say about the culture wars that we keep on talking about a lot lately. The kind of culture wars that are about, and social issues, and whether you're progressive or you're conservative, that, are, that tend to redraw the lines of our mission as a church around these things. So whether you're into the social justice wing of things or you're in the Christian national end of things, at least understand something. That's a perversion of the gospel because it's Christian pragmatism. You're using both of them to get to an end that frankly has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. Nothing to do with the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God. Absolutely nothing. Now that doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't have much to say about the different convictions that may, may funnel out of some of these extremes because the Bible certainly does have something to say about justice. It certainly does have something to think about, say, about government and about how we are to be good citizens. And that. It has lots to say about these kind of things, but they are never to be perversions of the gospel. Ever. And we do well to warn ourselves off of that. At the end of the day, Christian pragmatism is nothing less than ceremonial cleansing. It's cleansing the outside of the pot. Not cleaning the inside. That's what Jesus said. That's what he told him. He told the Pharisees many times, a couple of times, he was like, you clean the outside of the pot, but what you need is to clean out that gunk. And think about when you cook, right? I mean, is it going to just do you good to, after you do some, you know, clean, make some spaghetti, that you just clean the outside of the pot? No, because the inside's where the work has been done, right? Amanda hates it when I make scrambled eggs. Because I never get the inside of that pan done like I should, right? It's not the outside of the pot that matters. It's the inside of the pot. And Christian pragmatism just deals with the outside of the pot. Do you see the difference? I hope so. The re- but the opposite of that is, is that as we begin to look at the good gift of wine as it's related to the scriptures, is that it's a, it's a picture of joy. And Jesus is the transforming picture of that. He's the one transforming the water into wine, and it reminds us that he's the new wine. He's the new wine, and he is the source of all true joy, and he's the one who transforms our lives, and that is true Christian religion. You see it? Absolutely amazing. So then what do we do now with that? Well, now that we know the, the, the dangers of Christless living versus Christ-filled living and the lavishness that, that comes from it, how do we live, this third point, um, in anticipation of the messianic age, the messianic feast that is yet to come that we see unfold in Revelation 21? Let's look at verse 11. Jesus did this, this first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. 
I don't know to what degree Mary really understood who Jesus was until later on. But apparently the whole reason this glory was revealed was for the disciples' benefit. Not for the servants, not for the bridegroom, not for even for Mary at this particular point. God reveals the glory of his son so that we might believe in him and actively believe in him, daily believe in him. Disciples must live daily believing in Christ and gazing at his glory. How are you doing that? How well are you pursuing those things? John would have us believe in the glory of Jesus in two ways. Two ways. One, and this is what's been so evident throughout chapter one, he wants us to believe in the person of Jesus. You can't have a relationship with Jesus if you don't know the person of Jesus. And when we talk about the personhood of Jesus, we're talking about his divinity, we're talking about his eternality, we're talking about his incarnation, we're talking about his sovereign rule as the now rightful king over all creation. If that is not in our hopper, if you will, when we relate to Jesus and we read the Bible and we come to church and we worship on Sundays, here's what's going to happen as a result. We're going to misunderstand our union with Christ and we miss the, the, the deepening reality of actually what it means to be loved by the Son of God. When we see the full personhood of Jesus and everything that John has been laying out and what he'll continue to lay out throughout the rest of his gospel, there is an unfathomable experience with our union with Christ. Right here, right now. It preserves us and keeps us moving forward. The second way, though, that we believe on the glory of Jesus is to believe and embrace his ministry, Jesus' ministry. Jesus wasn't about building platforms for himself. In fact, many times he told people, don't go tell people what I've just done here. He's going to get the glory regardless. We need to embrace the same kind of humble ministry that Jesus did. Jesus saw a need at this wedding feast, and he was happy and more than willing to approach this ordinary person and any ordinary per person with the everyday need of their lives through grace and power. That's the humility of Jesus' ministry. And how much more do we need Christians embracing that humility of ministry? Understanding our role of just feed the poor and just go on. Care for your neighbor who's going through a divorce. Care for the family down the road who just lost jobs. Caring for, like, this is the humble ministry of Jesus, and it's not glitzy, it's not glamorous, it's just not. But all of Jesus' gifts are the best gifts. The best gifts. Particularly the spiritual benefits of his gifts through his work in ministry. And we would be encouraged this morning to embrace that kind of humble ministry here in our church. Lucas is working on relationships with um, a couple of local organizations, and he's going to set up a work day here sometime later in the spring, maybe April or May. 
And it's just a way to serve our community, to serve refugees and all kinds of other people that live right here in our area. Just embrace the simple, humble ministry of Jesus. Preach Jesus wherever you can. And let's just be the family that God has called us to be. So what we're seeing unfold in this passage is, in this wedding feast, is the Sabbath. The seventh day. I told you this is the seventh day of John's introduction, I think. I think it's true. He's coming on the scene and he's showing through his first sign that he is the true Sabbath rest. The true Sabbath that we see back in creation we were resting God. It's to be a day of rest to give worship and glory to God. And Jesus is the full embodiment of that. No one else compares. He is our Sabbath. And in this recreation narrative, if you will, he is establishing full redemption for his people. We should rest in him, friends. All the more right now in the midst of this crazy world we live in, Learn to rest in him. God, help us now as we finish up and move towards praying over Ryan and Haley this morning and sending them now to their new call and just being committed to the simple and humble ministry that you yourself lived out many, many, many centuries ago prepare us now for this feast together to remind it of this itself as just a picture of what is yet to come it's in christ's name we pray amen